This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with Jacob Goldstein about his new book, Money, The True Story of a Made-Up Thing. Jacob, you're the co-host of the national public radio podcast, Planet Money. And in a well-ordered society, your book would be required reading in all the nation's schools, public and private, elementary, high school, and college. To most Americans, money is a divine mystery, godlike in its powers to save or destroy the world. You relieve us of our superstitions, show that money is the greatest of mankind's inventions, the making of something out of nothing with the power of the human imagination. Maybe you can begin with the first of your origin stories 5,000 years ago in ancient Mesopotamia. Sure. Uh, Thank you for that very generous introduction. Um, So, right. So, 5,000 years ago, a little more, uh, in Mesopotamia, what had happened was people had started sealing small clay shapes inside hollow balls, hollow balls made of clay to represent debts. So like a little, uh, a little clay cone inside the ball uh, meant uh, like I owe you a measure of barley. A disc apparently stood for a sheep, you know. So if I gave you a clay ball uh, with uh, three little discs inside, it meant I owe you uh, three sheep, right? So this is early debt recording. Uh, and then people started taking the little tokens inside the clay ball. And while the clay was still wet, impressing it upon the outside of the ball, making the shape of the token outside the ball so you could presumably know what was inside the ball. And then at some point, people realized, oh, wait, that shape in the clay, that is enough to record the debt. We don't actually have to put the token inside the ball anymore, is the the theory. And this was the origin of writing. This this led to, you know, cuneiform, which was the first writing that we know of. So the first writers are accountants, they're not poets. Exactly, yes. The first writing is not about a love or memory. I guess it is about memory. The first writing is about debt, right? Writing is invented to record debt. All right. And it's an improvement over the system of barter. You don't have to bring the barley or the oxen or the sheep. You just have to hand them the cuneiform. Yeah. And specifically, what ends up happening is uh, it allows for much bigger, more complex societies, right? You get these large, you know, large, complicated city-states emerging, and they're sort of run through what scholars call the temple complex. But apparently, that's sort of like a city hall, right? It's kind of run by the high priest. But there are scribes who work at the temple complex recording sort of, you know, all of the things, all of the grain and barley and, and, and beer that is coming in and going out of the temple. And this is kind of the central organizing principle of these societies, at least in terms of material goods. All right. Now let's move forward to coins. Where and when do they show up? So coins show up 
Uh, in the eastern Mediterranean, uh, in modern-day Turkey, what was then the Kingdom of Lydia, around, I don't have it in front of me, 700 BC-ish. And they arose because of a, a very interesting sort of particular situation in Lydia. And that was they had a lot of, of a metal called electrum. And electrum is a mix of gold and silver. It occurs naturally, and they're kind of mixed up. And so this presented an interesting sort of problem, right? It's nice to have lots of gold and silver in your kingdom, but this is a time, you know, then as now, when gold and silver are valued according to their their weight, their mass. And if you have this amalgam, you have this problem of like, well, how much in this lump of metal is gold and how much is silver? And so what the Lydians did was they started taking uh, pieces, chunks of electrum, where there was a relatively uniform ratio of gold and silver, and cutting them into standardized size, mass lumps, and then stamping a lion, which was apparently the royal symbol, onto those lumps. And those were the first coins. Like, pretty clearly, there's this moment when we see coins emerge, and that was it. Uh, the Lydians were conquered uh, by the Persians. They liked coins, but they didn't get very far with them. Uh, but the Greeks, who, of course, were right next door to Lydia, they loved coins. Uh, they adopted pure silver coins, became the main coin in Greece. And Part of the reason, interestingly, that coins were so well-suited to Greece was the Greeks were developing this new kind of society uh, that was much less sort of top-down than the, you know, uh, kind of priest-king societies that had come before, right? This was a sort of proto-democracy, not great democracy by modern standards, but a, but a new thing in the world. And coins allowed people to have these complex societies and specialization and trade without having a priest king at the top who sort of told everybody what to do. It allowed for, you know, market exchange. That, and that is such a good system that it soon takes over the world. Yes, everybody loved coins. Uh, they, in fact, seem to have emerged uh, independently in China, as far as we can tell, there's not, uh, you know, a clear person bringing them from uh, the Eastern Mediterranean to China. So they seem to have arisen independently there, and they persist. Well, obviously to this day, but coins are the are the main form of sort of physical money uh, for uh, well more than a thousand years. It's a thousand A.D. You know, more than fifteen hundred years later, when when paper money is invented in China. And how, how do they do that? How do the Chinese invent paper money? Well, first they invent paper, well, which is important. Uh, and, then, and then there is this moment, as I said, around 1000 AD in this province, uh, Sichuan, where at the time, in most of China at the time, they used bronze for coins. But in Sichuan, they largely used iron. And this was an era when you know, the value of a coin came from the value of the metal itself, and iron wasn't very valuable. So uh, it took a lot of iron coins to buy anything. It took a pound and a half of iron coins to buy a pound of salt. So this was a bad thing to use for money. It was very inconvenient. And some merchant, we don't know exactly who, uh, in this province had this idea. He said, okay, you can leave me your very heavy, very inconvenient iron coins, and I will give you a receipt, basically a claim check for whatever, a thousand iron coins. 
And these receipts, these claim checks themselves started to circulate as money. People said, look, just take this receipt instead of me having to go get all these coins. And so the paper became money and the government saw this and liked it uh, and they got involved and it spread across all of China. And, and it was really uh, was really an innovation. You know, it was a very useful new technology. Uh, this was a time, obviously, when there was no mechanized transport. So moving heavy quantities of coins around was costly and difficult. And it happened to come at this time when China more generally was in the middle of this really profound sort of economic and technological revolution. They were inventing, uh, you know, new kinds of agriculture. There was uh, urbanization was happening. There were a couple of cities in China with a million people, which is, you know, 10 times the population of any city in Europe at the time. There was a restaurant scene in the capital, uh, a real flowering of, of markets, basically, and trade. And, it, and the, the paper money facilitates that trade. I mean, it, you, it, you couldn't have had that kind of trade with heavy iron coins. It absolutely does. And it facilitates trade over distances. You know, there are these amazing stories of, of people, uh, having, say, a fish hatchery. This was a business. You could have a fish hatchery, but maybe your spot was not the best spot to raise fish to maturity. So they would actually transport fish, you know, distances, uh, uh, to, to raise them to maturity. And, uh, well, and then the Mongols come. We should talk about the Mongols because yeah. they're a part of this story. The Mongols invade China uh, in uh, around, what, 1200 or so. Uh, and th the Mongols love paper money uh, for the reason you said, right? Because the Mongols have uh, have this vast territory. In fact, a guest on your show recently was talking about silk, was talking about the same thing. And I thought, oh, this is, this is perfect. Uh, you know, they control much of Asia, right? And they are nomadic. And so they recognize immediately how – great paper money, right? You're riding on horse across Asia and you could carry a tremendous amount of value on a piece of paper instead of in pounds and pounds of coins. That is a breakthrough. Uh, so so uh, the Mongols love paper money. Uh, Kublai Khan, uh, the grandson of Genghis Khan, uh, becomes the great Khan and is ruling over much of China as well as much of Asia. And he actually takes this next really profound step sort of ahead of his time, where he, he actually says, okay, paper money has been this claim check for metal, a, you know, a, a paper you can exchange for bronze coins, typically. We're not going to do that anymore. Now the paper money is just going to be paper, uh, which is, of course, the way money works today. But uh, at the time, it must have been extraordinary. And yet it worked. Uh, and we know this from various historical records, including Marco Polo, uh, who, who visited Asia at this time and described it in his travels, you know, in his famous book when he got back to Europe. And in fact, people didn't believe him because it seemed so absurd, you know, uh, that this money, you know, made from the bark of trees, as he said, could pass, for, uh, that could pass as real money. And yet it did. And how, how do people accept it? I mean, the, the Mongol Empire runs all the way from the Pacific Ocean to Vienna. And, 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 <laughs> and, and how do people presented, you know, let's say in Persia or in Turkey or in Greek, Greece with a piece of paper they never heard of, how do they accept it as value? 
I don't know how well it worked in Persia or Greece, to be honest. I mean, China itself was quite large, and China had a longer history with paper money uh, by this time. Uh, I will say one key to its success was uh, the Khan said, basically, accept this money or I'll kill you. Right. I mean, it was a very top down society. And Marco Polo described all these rules of, you know, merchants entering uh, the, the Mongol Empire having to, having to give up their, their treasures, their whatever, you know, uh, coins in exchange for paper. So, so, you know, the point of a spear was a big part of what encouraged people to use paper money. When does paper money begin to come into to Europe? Uh, not for a long time. And, and one detail I should mention is uh, after the, the Mongols were pushed out of China by what became the Ming Dynasty, uh, the new rulers, the Ming Dynasty, actually uh, didn't like paper money, really. They were wary of that whole kind of economic efflorescence that had happened uh, and, you know, sort of dreamed of going back to this kind of idealized, self-sufficient agricultural past and they got rid of paper money. China got rid of paper money altogether. And indeed, a lot of the sort of economic innovations that they had adopted went away. And in fact, the Chinese got poorer after that, which is a really useful lesson to me, not to be too reductive. But, you know, we, we take some amount of economic progress for granted still, I think. And a, a clear point of that story is it doesn't have to go that way, right? A whole society can get poorer for hundreds of years. Which is why the Europe, you know, get, jumps well ahead of China in terms of scientific revolution and in terms of capitalism. Exactly right. Exactly right. And, and it is at that point when, when capitalism and the scientific revolution are starting to take off uh, hundreds of years after China's economic revolution. That is the point when we first start to see paper money in Europe, uh, the 1600s, basically. Um, one of the first places we see it is in Sweden, which in sort of a, an echo of what had happened in Sichuan, the Swedes also had very inconvenient metal money. Uh, they had a lot of copper. Copper was really, I guess, abundant there. And copper is much less valuable than silver or gold, things that were more commonly used for coins. So as a result, these coins, I don't even know if coin is the right word, in Sweden could be like several feet long and weigh 30 pounds and people would have to carry them on their backs. Uh, and so, so it, it was a, a, a very useful place to introduce paper money. And they did it in the 1600s. Uh, it followed in England uh, not long after where goldsmiths started giving people paper receipts again, kind of an echo of what had happened in Europe. Uh, and that's but, happening when lots of other kind of capitalist institutions are getting going. Sorry, go ahead. Well, it's also happening with the coming of printing and and uh, books in, in into into Europe. Yes, yes. I guess it's not that long after, is it? It's not. No, it's not no. that long after after uh, Gutenberg really in no. sort of long historical time. That's an excellent. Yeah. Point. All right. So now we have these technologies. We have printing, and we have. Money is a technology, right? Absolutely. Yeah, money itself is a technology. Paper money is a sort of technological innovation. Yeah, it's something that, you know, makes us more efficient. It makes it easier to, to do things in the world. Then how do we get to stock market and capitalism and Amsterdam? Talk about Amsterdam. 
Yeah, Amsterdam. Amsterdam is an amazing story. So it, this is also around 1600. Um, this is the era when European colonialism is taking off. Europeans are, you know, sending ships around the world. Uh, often they're doing terrible things to people who live in these other parts of the world. They are also getting very rich, right? And this is a, a bound up with, with nationalism. A lot of these trading companies are, are uh, you know, national monopolies. And so the Dutch create uh, the Dutch East India Company. And there is this basic need that is, you know, relevant for many kinds of businesses today even. And it is certainly relevant if you are starting a trading company where you want to build ships and send them, you know, halfway around the world to try and bring back spices, in the case of the Dutch East India Company, uh, to Europe so you can sell them for lots of money, right? And the basic problem is I have this plan and this plan is going to make me a lot of money in the future, but I don't have enough money now to carry out the plan, right? I need lots of money to build the ships and hire the crews. And so in order to raise this money, the sort of stock market basically is invented. The, the joint stock company, you know, a multinational corporation that sells stock, that sells fractional shares of itself to basically anybody who wants to buy them. So this happens uh, – in Amsterdam with the Dutch East India Company. Anybody who wants to buy a fractional share of this company can do so. And and in a sort of new twist, they say, and also, if you want to come into our office and sell your share to someone else, you can do that. You don't have to wait and, you know, take a share of our profits in the future the way partnerships had worked before that. And that particular detail, that notion that you can sell your fractional share in the company uh, – whenever you want, basically. That is the revolutionary idea there. And pretty soon, a kind of informal stock exchange springs up on a, on a bridge in town, on the bridge where ship captains come in so you can get the news first. People are out there kind of wheeling and dealing, trading stock. And there's so many people on the bridge that the the city leaders in Amsterdam are are, are like, let's just build a build a room, build a courtyard for all these people to go trade stock. And so they open basically the world's first stock exchange so people can trade their Dutch East India Company stock. And this is what's going on in Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice because it, what comes from comes out of Amsterdam comes then comes into England, right? With, with their East India Company and, and their inventions of the stock market. And, and it's, it's, uh, it's a work of, of uh, great imaginative genius, Yes, yes. The multinational corporation is is an amazing invention. And, you know, it. many multinational corporations have done many bad things. Uh, and so there are plenty of reasons to be wary. But also, it is, it is a very clever invention that is very useful in many ways. It, it also founded America. I mean, the Massachusetts Bay Colony is a... Capitalist venture. Oh, interesting! I didn't know that one. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah! Wow, it was to bring back beaver felt, right? Because fur, yeah, right. That was Astor, right? The first New York fortunes. No, were, no, no. Were, that, that's that's la that's later. That's a hundred yeah, yeah. years later. Yeah, huh? But, but at the beginning, I mean, it's, I mean, the whole principle of uh, Puritan virtue is based on. 
vice and luxury in London where a, a beaver hat sold for as much as a farm. Uh-huh. You know, it was, the height, it was the height of fashion. But it, but the, com- the, the, the company was set up like that, like, like, a, like a corporation, a, a, a joint, joint venture. A joint stock company, a joint stock yeah. company, yeah. yeah. Uh, how did it do, do you know? They did well. Uh-huh. I mean, it, it, yeah, they did very well. And, and the uh, actually, the Puritans develop a, what they call a capitalist theology. The Protestant work ethic and the spirit of capitalism, is it that? Uh, yes, right there. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. right there. Right. Uh, well, Simon Skama, this, I'm, now I'm getting into stuff I know less well, and you may well know it better than I do, but, you know, Simon Skama wrote about, I think, the Dutch uh, – and their relationship to getting rich and how they would buy pictures with their money to sort of yeah. navigate their religion and their wealth. But that, but that I'm, I'm on thin ice there. I don't know that so well. Uh, it's a wonderful book, Shama. I mean, it's the embarrassment, the embarrassment of riches. That's it. That's it. 17th century uh, Holland. Yeah, that's that period that we're talking about. Well, let's move on now to the 17th century and the coming of the Bank of England, and uh, we're moving toward where we are in modern finance. Explain, in your discussion about about stock market, explain what you mean when you say that uh, the essence of finance is time travel. Yes. So two things. I mean, one, I should say that phrase I take from from a contemporary writer, a a guy named Matt Levine, who is – wonderful writer about finance. And so I should just credit him for that because it's his. A second, when I was talking before about starting a company with your plan to get money, uh, but you don't have the money to do the things you need to do to get the money, that's when you need finance, right? I mean, to take a simple contemporary example, if you get a job Great. I'm going to get paid now. I'm going to have an income. But to get to my job, I need a car. I don't have the money now to buy a car. But if I can have a car, I'll have money in the future because I'll have a job. So what you need is a loan, simply. What you need is somebody to give you money now so that you can get more money later, right? And the person giving you a loan is on the other sort of end of the time money spectrum. They have more money than they need now. What they want is more money later. So the elegant thing that finance does is it matches up people who want to move money around in time, right? The person who needs money now so that they can get money later with the person who has more money than they need now and is willing to give it up now for the chance of having even more money later. And, and you know, the basic function of a bank is to match those people, to get in between those people. So it's that saving is about moving resources from the present into the future. And finance is about moving resources from the future back into the present. Yes, I believe you are quoting Matt Levine. He clearly said it better than I did. I did. So but, all credit to him. Yes. But, but this, of course, makes possible the immense multiplication of, of money because it can be loaned and so it can be in more than one place at a time. So you get more and more money. Yes. Well, the more than one place at a time is 
is an important point. And, you know, you could have a world where people make loans and the money is not in more than one place at a time. But that is not our world, no. right? Importantly, our world is built on what we call fractional reserve banking, which means in a simplified sense, if you put a deposit into the bank, the bank can then make a loan to someone else who will take that money and deposit it in their bank. And now what feels like the same dollar is in two places at once. It's in your bank account and it's in the bank account of the person who got the loan. And then that bank can lend it again, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't exactly work that way, but it, it basically works that way. That is a sort of useful model of thinking about it. And it is, as you say, very powerful. It makes it easier to get a loan. It makes it easier for there to be more money in the world when we need more money. Uh, you know, it's hard to imagine now, but before finance was sort of fully developed, there were times when a big problem in the world was just that there was not enough money. And I don't mean enough wealth, but not enough stuff of money to, to go around. And so fractional reserve banking is useful in that way. It, there is this inherent problem and it, and it, you know, I think it is intuitive when you first hear the description of like, wait, my dollar is also in someone else's bank account. How does that work? The, the intuitive problem is if everybody goes and asks for their money back at the same time, the whole system collapses. And that is a real problem. And we have solved it some. We have mitigated it by having, you know, a central bank that can lend into panics, by having uh, the federal government guarantee bank deposits up to a relatively large amount. But it is still there, and it is at the root of financial crises. Right. but it, Maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves. I'm not sure. We're not, because what we're talking about now is what is happening toward the end of the 17th century with the, with the Bank of England, Right. Well, there's the Bank of England. I mean, and then there's John Law. Yeah. The, the, the Bank of England is a, is a pretty good model. So, the, so the British create the Bank of England in the 1690s, and it it is you know it becomes the first central bank. They don't know that it's going to be a central bank. The term central bank won't be invented for a long time, but it is this new kind of thing uh, created in part because in England Parliament now has more power than it did. Uh, relative to the king. And so the Bank of England is this interesting kind of oh, intermediation between parliament and the king. It's a way for the king to borrow money, but for parliament to sort of have, have more leverage on the king to pay it back, basically. Uh, but it winds up being this very useful stabilizing institution for the long run, over the long run, uh, for England, for Great Britain. And it is what you know, powers the the um, British Empire, right? Absolutely. I mean, we can compare it to France, right? Uh, Britain's great rival for much of this period. Uh, and, you know, there's a story I tell in the book that I sort of couldn't believe that I didn't know this story before I read the book. Like, it's such an extraordinary story. There's this uh, uh, guy uh, born in Scotland named John Law and um, grows up and goes to London and... Uh, sort of a man about town, and he kills a man in a duel and is convicted of murder and sentenced to death right around the time, as it happens, when the Bank of England is being founded, by the way. And then he escapes from jail and uh, sneaks off to Europe. And there he sees all of these things we've been discussing, these uh, financial innovations that are going on. Uh, he's in Amsterdam, and he sees uh, the Dutch East India Company in the stock market, and he has seen paper money emerging uh, in England. And he also gets rich as a gambler using probability theory, which is a new thing. And, and he, he 
realizes that this is a moment when you can sort of create a whole economy. He sees that paper money and banks and stock uh, markets and, you know, joint stock companies are, are useful things and that you could put them all together. And he sort of goes around Europe pitching this idea of, the, of this economy he has in his mind and finds a taker in France, uh, which is being run by uh, a regent, a duke who is running uh, France in the name of, uh, of the boy king, right? Louis, was he the 15th, I believe? Uh, and so this regent basically gives John Law free reign to build this economy in France, and he does. John Law creates the, the first uh, modern bank in France and prints France's first paper money, and he gets control of France's North American territories, which are vast. You know, this is what will become the Louisiana Purchase, the whole sort of central section of the United States all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, and he creates a, a, what becomes known as the Mississippi Company, one of these joint stock companies like we were discussing, and uh, sells stock, which conveniently you can buy with the paper money that is printed by his bank in great quantities. And there is this incredible boom. And for a while, this boom is really good for France's economy. The country had been bankrupt, and now there is more money and more trade. Uh, um, but as happens with these kinds of booms, it gets out of hand and uh, turns into this mania, and people are flooding into Paris and trading uh, Mississippi Company stock in the street, and the world millionaire is invented, because so many people are getting so rich they need a new word to describe it. Uh, and then uh, it's too much. It, it gets out of hand. Uh, there starts to be inflation, uh, and John Law starts sort of changing a lot of rules, tries as uh, Kublai Khan had tried long before to have paper money be only paper, but the French aren't really buying that. And so it all comes crashing down and John Law gets gets chased out of Paris and, and lives the rest of his life in Venice as a gambler. That, and, but also the reason for that was that the, the speculation was that the Mississippi co com Company in America was going to yield – enormous riches like the spices of the East Indies. There was going to be gold, there was going to be silver. But but none of that happened. That's right. And 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 like the Spanish, right? The Spanish had had brought back from uh Latin America, from what's now Latin America, a tremendous amount of, of silver, yeah. tremendous amount of wealth. And so uh that was the expectation. There were stories that, you know, there is a mountain full of emeralds right. uh, yeah. somewhere in right. the Mississippi. And and it it went and, and and it went terribly. I mean they did name, you know, the the Duke who was the regent of France, he was the Duke of Orleans, the Duke of Orléans. So they named the capital of this new territory after him, right? That's where we get New Orleans, kind of delightfully. But even New Orleans itself was just, you know, a few houses yeah, right, uh, yeah, uh, right. only. Most of the people who went died of disease. Uh, and so, yes, th there was a notion of real economic returns. Maybe it wasn't all uh, – Foolishness, right? Maybe there was some plausible story about real wealth yeah. coming uh, from this uh, yeah. from this land, but that didn't happen. All right, let's move forward into the 18th and 19th century and talk about the gold standard. Sure. What is, what is the gold standard, and how did that get get up and running, and and uh, how did that work? So. For a long time, money had been exchangeable for typically for either gold or silver. 
Uh, and it was complicated, and the sort of setting the ratio right was complicated because you have a market value for the metal itself, and then you have the sort of exchange value for the currency, and things were quite often getting out of whack. And so uh, in the first half of the 1800s, uh, uh, Great Britain, which at the time was you know the most important economy in the world, said, we're just going to make gold money. The pound is going to be exchangeable at a fixed rate for gold. The definition of a pound is a certain amount of gold. Today, tomorrow, forever. That is the meaning of, of the pound sterling. It has nothing to do with sterling silver anymore. It's just gold. And uh, all of the other major economies in the world, including the United States, uh, followed uh, followed and, and set up the same rules. So, so what you had in the 19th century was this era when each currency – uh, was defined as a fixed amount of gold. And that had, uh, one of the effects of that was that it also meant that each currency, uh, was the same, had a fixed value relative to every other currency, right? So today we're used to the relative values of currencies fluctuating. But under the gold standard, that didn't happen, right? So, um, 20 dollars in some sense always got you an ounce of gold year in and year out. And a dollar always got you the same amount of pounds or of French francs year in and year out. And why does that fall apart? Or why is that uh, doesn't work out so well? Why, I mean, I think you say that the gold standard was what got us into the Great Depression of the 30s. Yes, yes, that that is the case. Uh, so... What happened was it, it worked okay for a while. It was useful, it was useful to have a fixed exchange rate among major currencies. Uh, you know, it made trade easier and this was an era of globalization. It started to kind of fall apart after World War I. Uh, as we know, there was an incredible amount of debt and there was reparations imposed on Germany and, and a whole web of debts and reparations that were sort of straining the world economy in the 20s. But as you say, the real crisis, the real collapse came in the 30s. And the, the basic problem is this. What happened in the Depression was first there was a normal economic decline – but then it started to get worse and worse, and you had prices falling, which is a problem that we're not used to, right? In our world, we don't even think of falling prices as a problem. It sounds nice, lower prices. But it was a problem because people's wages were falling along with prices, which, okay, sort of fair enough. But the thing that was not falling was people's debts, right? Your debts don't fall when prices and wages fall. You take out a loan and then the depression hits and your loan is the same amount in dollars, but your pay is lower, right? So people are buried in their debts. In real terms, their debts are getting bigger, right? You have to work more and more to pay off the same amount of debt. And that is the fundamental economic disaster, right? Uh, it also means that people Stop buying stuff, basically, because if you think prices are going to be cheaper in a year, you'll wait to buy something. So you have people getting crushed under debts that in real terms are getting larger and larger. They're defaulting on their debts. That's making banks go bankrupt. You have people buying less and less stuff. That's causing this industrial collapse. And so the solution to that problem is basically to print more money. It's to stop the fall in prices, 
And the way you stop the fall in prices is to print more money. But of course, the point of the gold standard is you can't just print more money, right? It's why people who like the gold standard like the gold standard, because you can't just print more money. And so this is the problem. And things are just getting worse and worse because the gold standard had such a firm grip on people's worldview. I mean, maybe the most interesting thing to me about this whole period is that fact, right? It's striking to me through the whole history of money how people tend to think that whatever is money at a given moment, whatever set of rules makes up money at a given moment, is just the only way the world could be, right? And that was particularly strong during the gold standard, you know, this gold standard mentality. And so the world is collapsing under the depression, driven largely by the rules of the gold standard that are preventing governments from addressing the fundamental problem. Uh, finally, the story in this country, at least, is that uh, Franklin Roosevelt gets elected, takes office in 1933, and pretty quickly just says, we don't have to do this anymore. Like, we can print more money. We, you know, a dollar doesn't have to buy you the same amount of gold. We can, we can fight the fall in prices by devaluing the dollar in terms of gold, effectively printing more money. And his own advisors say, no, you can't do that. One of them says it's the end of Western civilization. Uh, but he does it. He essentially, for practical purposes, takes the U.S. off the gold standard and it works. I mean, it's not the end of the depression. It, that will take a long time, obviously. But it is clear that that is the moment when things start getting better. Well, let's skip forward to where we are now. Do we have some of that same problem? I mean, do we have... That myopia, sort of? Well, people under under heavy debt. The problem in the Depression was not so much the level of the debt, but the direction, right? When prices are falling, a fixed amount of debt becomes harder and harder to pay off. I see. When yeah. prices and wages, I should say, are falling, a fixed amount of debt becomes harder and harder to pay off. Essentially, falling prices are bad for debtors and good for creditors, actually. It means you get paid back in money that buys more. Rising prices, inflation, is good for a debtor and bad for a creditor, right? If you take out a mortgage – and inflation goes way up, it's much easier to pay off your mortgage. Your wages tend to rise with inflation, and so less work lets you pay your mortgage. So debt is obviously still a problem for many people, but the core problem in the, in the Depression was deflation, was the falling, falling prices and wages. And we don't, fortunately, have that problem now. Okay. All right. What problems do we have now? Well, I mean, <laughs> like, I mean, you you know as well. We have lots of problems. Uh, I mean, I don't I don't even know what to say. Do you have some in mind? I'm happy to talk about. No, but I mean, whatever you want. I mean, you know, I read in the newspapers that the uh, the economists are predicting uh, another great depression, economic catastrophe. Are they? Are they? I don't think. I don't think we're on the brink of another Great Depression. I could certainly be wrong, but I. I, I don't. I mean, things are very bad. I, I mean, I will say. Let me say this. So clearly, it has been a brutal year for the economy. We have not had a financial crisis. We have not had a you know a complete meltdown. Uh, things, at least before this latest wave of of coronavirus cases were getting better. They were still very bad, but the unemployment rate was falling. So 
I don't. It's possible that more really horrible things will happen uh, in in a short term way. But I feel like the medium term picture seems okay. Uh, you know, there are lots of long term problems, right? Rising inequality. Uh, Stagnant wages, although wages were becoming less stagnant before the pandemic hit. You know, this is sort of all over the place. Forgive me for being not that structured. One thing I will say is I think – here's one thing I'm optimistic about. There's a lot of bad things and there's a lot of things to worry about. But, you know, in, in terms of sort of contemporary money and the way it works and who has power, the Federal Reserve, central banks in general in the U.S., the Federal Reserve is is at the center of it. And one thing that is encouraging to me is I think the Federal Reserve has done quite a good job this year uh, preventing the economic crisis from becoming a financial crisis. And maybe more importantly for the long run, I think the Federal Reserve has has learned from the past 10 years. You know, after the financial crisis, we had a terrible, slow recovery. Uh, it took a long, long time for unemployment to come down. You mean the, cri- you mean the crisis of 2008? Yes. After the financial crisis of 2008, it took, you know, a decade for unemployment to come back down, which is, which is terrible, right? Which is terrible. And I do think the Federal Reserve learned from that. They have said, you know, one thing they said this fall, and it didn't get a ton of attention outside of the sort of financial press because so much else was going on. It was such an insane time. But they basically said they are going to be much more aggressive in trying to get the economy back to full employment. They're going to be less worried about inflation and more worried about getting everybody back to work because they realize that having really low unemployment, having everybody who wants a job be able to get a job is really good for workers, right? And that may be obvious, but that's, you know, the thing you want is for workers to have power, right? And one way workers can have power is for unemployment to be really low, for a worker to be able to say, if their boss is treating them badly, I'll just go across the street and get another job, right? That That is a really big deal. And clearly, worker power has been falling in many ways for a long time. And one way to help workers get power is to have full employment. And I think the Fed has learned that lesson. And I am encouraged by that. All right. Well, I mean, you, you come, you end your book with the question, opening question is the future of money. Uh, money, I mean, reading your book, you see that money is constantly being invented and reinvented and made to match circumstances that human beings find themselves in. I mean, it is a technology, and it's it's changing and evolves to meet new circumstances. And at the end of your book, you, you say that people looking back, let's say 200 years from now, at our current uses and definitions of money will be think it is very primitive. In other words, money will continue to change. I don't know how. I'm afraid you're going to ask me how. I, uh, I don't know how, right? I mean, one of the really interesting lessons to me from the book is that people usually don't see what's coming. And in fact, you know, maybe fight what's coming or maybe say what's coming is impossible or just don't even don't even know, don't even have any idea. So, I mean, we could talk about the things that people talk about, right? I mean, there is Bitcoin. It's tempting to say Bitcoin in this context. Uh, I will say 
you know, the, the central idea that motivated people to invent Bitcoin was the idea of having a money without the government, without any intermediary, really, but essentially without the government. And it seems to me unlikely that governments will give up their control over money. So, but I don't know. So there's, that's one thing. Um, I mean, in a much less dramatic way, in a sort of more short-term way, one thing we're seeing already is governments borrowing profoundly more money than they used to uh, and not suffering the consequences of, that governments used to suffer from borrowing lots of money, at least not yet. So that doesn't have the kind of world historical drama of some of these other shifts we'll see, but it's one that is already happening. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's interesting and sort of exciting to realize that we're just in the middle of some story and we have no idea what's coming next. Yes, but the great positive lesson to be that I draw from reading your book is that money is human and not divine. In, in other words, it's something made by men for the use of mortal men. Yes. It's, ener- it's energy and, and the uh, – so that – it's something we can make, and 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 it it's subject to the power of, of of the human imagination. Yeah, it's a choice, right? It doesn't feel like a choice. It feels like something that just exists, like water or something. But it's not that at all. It's a set of rules, and we get to make up the rules, even though it you know doesn't feel that way. It really is, and we can change it if we want to. Or if we have to. Or if we have to. More often because we have to, right. More often because there's some complete collapse and disaster and we say, oh my God, we got to do something else. <laughs> Listen, Jacob Goldstein, it's been a pleasure to talk to you about the, your new book, The World in Time, Money, the True Story of a Made-Up Thing. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much for having me on the show. It really means a lot to me. I've been a fan of yours for a long time. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.